and welcome to Eat Sleep Code, the official Teller podcast. I'm your host, Ed Charbonneau, here with my brand new co-host, John Bristow. How you doing, John? I'm well, thanks. Hi, everyone. Uh, old voice from the past, I guess. Um, but uh, great to be here and chat about all things regarding uh, software development. Yeah, so we're starting a new um, segment of the show. We used to do this a while back with, um, with a coworker and friend of mine, um, Brian Rinaldi. He used to join me on the show. Um, he's moved not only to different... Um, different parts of his career, but a uh, different company as, as well as you have, uh, John, but um, Brian's been a bit too busy to help me uh, with the show lately. And right. uh, you offered up some of your free time to kind of come on here and rant about uh, what's latest and greatest in software development. So oh, dude, I'm always off. I'm always willing to offer my ignorant opinion on things. So don't worry about that. <laughs> uh, we have opinions. We are, we are starting to become of of an age where we have lots of opinions, aren't we? Yes, absolutely. You know, I, I liken it to being those two old men up in the balcony of the Muppet show, Statler and Waldorf. Yeah. We, we just have, uh, lots of, uh, grim outtakes on what's latest and greatest. Uh, but uh, hopefully it's entertaining for you folks and, um, and educational as well. We have, you know, despite our gripes, we do have some experience to bring to the table, right? Sure. Sure. You're like, sure, whatever. I've, I've done things. <laughs> More like I've seen things, man. I've seen things. I've witnessed things. Can't unsee them. Um, speaking of things we can't unsee, CSS features for 2020. Mm. Uh, there's, there's a 2020 pun in there somewhere. I'm not going to go there, though. No, that's fine. I got gotcha. you. I, I, I do dad jokes for a living. There you go. So this is a blog post that came out. Uh, about two weeks ago, uh, three weeks ago, on the future of CSS features uh, coming up. Um, and it basically provides a rundown of some of the key features in CSS that folks are using. I thought it provided a really good uh, sense of you know what folks are using, how much experience they have with it. It's that classic sort of scenario where uh, you see the job ad uh, for a brand new language, and uh, the, the job ad's asking for uh, you know, 7,000 years of experience, despite the fact the language has only been out for a few months. So in this survey that they've done around, that's centered around it, which is the state of CSS survey, a lot of people provided feedback. And what this blog post does was drill down into some of the specifics around features like Flexblock, Flexbox, et cetera, and kind of provided some uh, overall perspective around the survey itself. Yeah. What I found uh, really helpful about it is the fact that it reminds me a little bit of that website, Can I Use? Have you mm -hmm. ever seen that? Oh, so yeah. Can I Use is uh, it's kind of like a catch-all for um, all the HTML5 uh, and CSS3 features, mm -hmm. uh, and it reports back to you whether you can use that feature given uh, your, your uh, target audience is on a certain platform like right. IE nine or below or uh you got opera users or whatever it tells you if your your css or html feature is is lit up on that browser um this is kind of uh done in more of a survey format like you said um which i think is a little more interesting because it gives you insight into what people are using whether they're sure. you know not not so much can you use it but are people using it right and um 
it was a lot of features of CSS in here mentioned that I just wasn't even aware that uh, existed, let alone know how to use it. Um, yeah, Flexbox being the, the main one that I think everyone kind of uh, aligns themselves to wanting to use, um, that typically, in my experience, has the most, uh, if it was like sort of like the Stack Overflow survey, uh, they have that section where, uh, what are you using versus what would you love to use? And Flexbox is certainly up there, I think, for a lot of folks. Um, in addition to that, there's some other capabilities like grid layout, et cetera. Um, there's interactions, filters, you know, things of that nature. Um, I, I find that this sort of thing, generally speaking, um, becomes a little bit tiresome to look at after a while. Again, I'm going to put on my curmudgeon <laughs> hat here. The reason why is just because after you get your layout and you're, you're, you're pretty well sorted. I mean, it depends on the type of site you're writing. Um, but you're pretty well sorted on terms of layout and um, you're, you're feeling good as far as the way that your styles are being applied. After that, I'm not, I'm not terribly concerned about things like interactions or um, typography or animations because I'm going to be using a framework that's going to do that stuff for me. Now, a lot of people would argue, well, you know, you don't have JavaScript all the time. And the reality <laughs> is you do. You know, the reality is you, you, you do have JavaScript most of the time for the bulk of customers you're targeting. Now, it is true that a lot of times there are situations where, for whatever reason, uh, whether you're targeting, targeting a certain type of audience or uh, meaning, uh, you know, uh, users on a certain device, for example, uh, it can be the case where JavaScript isn't available. But by and large, I'm going to be targeting these things. The good thing about a lot of the frameworks you can use out there is that they will default to CSS if and when available. So that's a, you know, another uh, vote for using those frameworks. But um, I think it's, I think it's good that we're at that stage now where a lot of these things are, I mean, with, let's not forget the reason why you use these things is because you want to target the GPU and that's where CSS really shines. Uh, so these animations, transforms, transitions, fonts, uh, interactions, et cetera, they all leverage the GPU very effectively. Whereas if you're using um, you know, a framework that's relying upon JavaScript, that's going to be targeting more of the CPU. And for obvious reasons, because when you're talking about JavaScript, it's not clear as to the intent of what the programming language is doing. So it has to go through the CPU in some cases. So, but by and large, I think it's, it's, it's a good place that we're in right now with CSS, I think. Um, obviously, there's a lot of innovation going on in this space still, CSS3, CSS4, et cetera. Uh, but you know, I, I think I'm encouraged by the survey results. Yeah, one of the things that I, I thought was really interesting in here is uh, the fact that there is a lot of graphical support coming. Sure. Um, there are filters and effects that uh, I was just tinkering with as a result of reading this article the other day. Mm -hmm. um, and these are like Photoshop style effects, like blur and stuff like yep. that, that you can apply yep. to a layer of your you know, UI. And uh, for example, if you have a dialogue box, and you have like that gray like modal shroud that's around it. You can actually hit it with a single uh, CSS property and make it blur the background out. Right, right. And that's a pretty powerful feature. There's uh, probably half a dozen, if not more, blog posts uh, just on like CSS tricks alone on how to do that. And every uh, option so far is required JavaScript, like you mentioned. Uh, but it usually ends up where you're attaching something to the root HTML node and mm. like blurring, blurring it at that level 
or, or creating some kind of modal, you know, cover at that level. Uh, where this, you can just yeah, hit that one DOM element that's up on in the front of the background and, and just blur everything behind it. It's pretty neat sure. stuff. Yep. Um, so there was that one. Uh, masking. I knew when masking was there. Still haven't got used to the idea of using masks in CSS yet. That one's. Um, I I just I don't know. I haven't found a usefulness for it myself. Um, but it's it's good to have those things in your toolkit when you do need them. Mm-hmm. Yep. All good stuff. Yeah. yeah. So there's a lot of a lot of cool things coming with CSS. Keep your eye out for that one. We'll we'll post uh, links in the show notes to that one. It's called the future of CSS features in 2020. Um, so we're going to shift gears a little bit. Uh, let's, uh, let's talk about immersive experiences. So, <laughs> My favorite topic. <laughs> this one is, this one goes down the creepy path. Um, I'm a big fan of AR, uh, and, uh, not so much VR. I think, I think VR is very cool in the near term. I think AR is more of the long-term play. Um, that that's enough topic for an entire show. Won't go down that rabbit hole of why why I believe that. But uh, if you've ever listened to any of the past podcasts, you probably know by now uh, why that is. But uh, this topic is a new immersive theater piece that lets viewers experience a plane crash. Because who doesn't want to experience a plane crash? Dude, I thought this was bananas. Uh, I've, I, I've flown planes a lot as have you, and uh, I live in Australia for those folks who don't know. And I go across that big pond known as the Pacific ocean quite a bit. I've been on a number of planes. I've sat at the back of planes for years and I've never really had, uh, anyone propose to me this idea, but what this is, is basically it's a, they've, they've taken, these folks have taken a container uh, those sort of shipping container rigs you see on on boats that uh, mm-hmm. you know if you, you've got the iPods or the iPads coming from wherever to the states, uh, they're typically shipping in these things. They've taken one of these uh, old containers and they've retrofit it with uh, seats from an airplane. And in addition to that, they're putting on you um, a sort of VR device, uh, you know, over the eyes and the ears, for example, and they are simulating. Uh, either one of two experiences, a, you know, a normal airplane flight or at the same time switching over to uh, an actual crash. So you get to experience what a plane crash is like. Now, I've been on a number of planes, as I said before. I've actually been in some emergency situations. Uh, and obviously, for, for obvious reasons, I've, I've been okay um, because I'm talking to you now. But the reality is, is that a plane crash is not like the Denzel Washington, we're inverted, I repeat, we're inverted type experience. <laughs> they tend to be pretty benign. Usually you'll get a captain coming over the PA system saying, listen, we've got a problem with one of the engines, we're turning around, and uh, we're going to make a safe landing, or the landing gear isn't down, and everyone's pretty cool. In fact, I find uh, flight travel and flight staff to be the most competent form of, a, or, of transportation on the planet. Um, compared to some of the experiences I've had on other forms of public transport. Um, so, but this is bananas. I mean, this is basically taking your worst fears, which is being out of control in a dark container and then simulating an environment, which I think rightfully so a lot of people are fearful of just because of not knowing what's going on up front. And uh, I, I don't know who would want to do this. Maybe some aviation enthusiasts just to see what it's like. 
but for me, I'll be like, no, hard no on this. What do you yeah, think? Yeah, so again, you know, I travel as well. Not not so many flights as you because uh, I can get more places where I'm in the U.S. So I don't have to fly everywhere I go. Uh, but I do fly quite a bit. Um, hit silver status last year, which isn't you know crazy amount of flying, but it's enough. There you go. Uh, that I don't I don't want to be involved in a, a plane crash and. I, I'll use the um, the George Carlin terminology. I've been in a few near hits. I don't mm-hmm. know if you remember his old bit, but it's oh sure. If it's a if it's a near miss, then then you, you didn't miss. If you're if, if you're going to hit each other, it's a near a near hit. Mm-hmm. I won't I won't ruin his bit, but uh, you get the point. Like, <laughs> I've been in a couple of those where there there's nearly been an accident. Uh, one of them in in SeaTac taking off. We had a, a plane almost land on top of us. And we like aborted takeoff and and jetted off the runway and got out of the way in time, type of thing. Uh, so yeah, I've been in a few of those. I don't want to experience the full capabilities of what could happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't quite understand who this audience is, but I have seen a little bit of uh, this idea of um, it's called dark tourism, as yep. where people do vacations and things that are related to. Uh, you know, disaster and stuff. Chernobyl, like that. for example. Yeah, that's a big dark tourism place. Visiting mm-hmm. the uh, the remnants of Chernobyl is a, a huge one. Um, so this is, I think, in the same regard. Like this was done more of a uh, art piece, I guess. I don't mm-hmm. know why they labeled it art piece, but that's <laughs> what it says in their article. But I think this is kind of geared towards those folks, like uh, dark tourism type people that want to. Uh, experience like a disaster and they they have a, a thrill-seeking feeling sure. from being put in that situation technology yep. wise though this is uh kind of a cool thing mm-hmm. um so they've mixed the idea of a flight simulator with physical boundaries they've they've replicated the inside of an airplane so you've got the physical experience of hey this is an airplane i'm getting into mixed with the uh the vr lens that they pop on your head to give you visuals um that uh you know you can't reproduce without you know crashing an aircraft Uh, sure this is as close as we can get to the holodeck as we can for now exactly yeah so it's kind of a cool mashup of technology in real life uh so i would kind of classify this more as an ar experience uh even though you don't have the, the goggles that or see-through in this scenario, you, but you still have other real-world objects that are interacting with the experience. So it's more of an augmented experience. So yeah. I think it's really, really cool idea. Um, not necessarily the most practical thing, uh, but uh, it's it's interesting to see where people are going to go with this stuff. Yeah, I'd like to see the function names in that code base, right? And if plane is on fire, true or false? Uh, if 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 cabin door is open while flying, true or false, you know, it kind of reminds me of those old BOS APIs, is computer on, is computer on fire, etc. The whole thing is wrapped in do while scare passengers. That's right. <laughs> uh, but, uh, it, I mean, technically speaking, though, this is really interesting. Like, mm-hmm. it could be used for positive things as well. I mean, you could do training scenarios. Uh, you don't have to just scare people. You could you know, do full on training scenarios with this. Yeah, and sure. And the the reality is the aviation industry does that today. Um, my my wife's a flight attendant. They actually went through 
they have te- they have training planes for flight staff, and uh, they they simulate you know uh, what it's like to descend rapidly, etc. Um, but this is kind of taking it to that next level. Okay, let's imagine that we're all about to die, and you're part of it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, like I said, it's good for training. Not something I want to do for recreation. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, speaking of scary stuff, um, our next article is uh, talking about Microsoft sw- sneakily switching Chrome searches to Google from Google to Bing. Um, don't don't know. I, I like the caption in the photo in this article. Stop trying to make Bing happen, Microsoft. It's never going to happen. Uh, do you, what what are you using these days, John? Uh, so I use Brave as my browser and I use DuckDuckGo for my search engine. And for 95% of the time, it gets me exactly what I need. Um, for those edge cases, uh, I tend to favor Google. So I'll go, I'll drop into Google if I'm not finding anything that I'm looking for. Uh, but that combination of Brave plus DuckDuckGo, I think is pretty sufficient for, you know, most of the time. As, as far as this, sort of change has occurred. Uh, I don't know if Microsoft, I, th- I can see this being kind of like a change by Microsoft to try and promote Bing. I, I you know, I'll have to credit Microsoft. They're, they're at least trying, you know? So I think that having competition is always a good thing. I'm not a huge fan in just using one search index for everything. And I would say, you know, it's a bit sneaky, but at the same time, I think that, you know, having another search engine is not a bad thing. I think it pushes the innovation on both ends. Yeah, I, I use primarily the, the Chrome stack myself. Um, it just, it, it's what works. Uh, you're, you're probably in the 1% um, of users using Brave and, um, sorry, what was the search engine duck, again? DuckDuckGo. DuckDuckGo. Is yeah. that... Try and yeah. try and tell someone who's non-technical that is your search engine, and the, the, the they kind of tilt their head sideways and give you that look like you've told them that the moon is made of cheese. And like, what are, what are you talking about? So uh, that's okay. Uh, it's it's a good search engine. It's a nice alternative. Uh, it's not any better or worse, I think, than what you typically get. But uh, I just use it for privacy purposes. I don't like being tracked, and uh, I think that's a real problem. That's part of the reason why I also use Brave. But this this sort of thing that's that's happened to customers using Office 365, I guess, uh, is a little sneaky. Um, you know, changing a, forcibly changing a default search engine is never a good thing, I think. But you know, the good thing is is that it's been you know uh, written about, and I think to developer teams, unless you're being told to on high that you have to do this, I think it's probably a feature you want to take off of your feature list. Uh, you know, forcibly switching changes like this is never a good thing. And we've seen this repeatedly with software again and again. Don't move people's cheese. Don't give, uh, make things opt in, not opt out. You know, these are good practices to enforce. And so I think Microsoft's going to have to take a page out of that book uh, yet again. Yeah, I found just personally, like, uh, I don't have anything against Bing. I just found that it never produces what I'm looking for when I'm looking for it. And I'm not a huge fan of Google these days. Um, not, not anything to do with their development stack, but their, um, their browser, uh, in search. 
seems to be crossing some gray areas as of late. Uh, okay. Like you said, with privacy and whatnot. So I don't sure. like to have all my eggs in the Google basket. I like to kind of distribute those eggs like you have. Uh, but I haven't made any big switches in the search engine market because I need to be productive first. <laughs> and uh, I think they know that, unfortunately. Uh, it just seems to be the most productive thing I've I've been able to find so far. But I, I can say I have not tried DuckDuckGo. Um, yeah, you made, know, I'm surprised. I'm surprised Stack Overflow hasn't made a search engine. You know, I know that they rely on Google, but it would be kind of cool <laughs> if you could just go to like, you know, uh, some kind of web page for for Stack Overflow. Um, not that I'd do that, but it's just it seems to be that's the they get. I think I remember Jeff Jeff Atwood saying many many years ago that the the vast majority of their traffic comes organically through Google, and I think that's the case for everyone. I mean, anyone looking at their own analytics will see. Organic traffic is easily 60, 70, 80% of their overall traffic. Maybe they need to uh, turn Stack Overflow into a PWA and have one of its ancillary features be a browser. No. <laughs> kind of do, do the opposite, right? I mean, your, your primary reason is to be there and fix your software development woes. And sure. then, oh, you might, you might need to search also because. Yeah, ninety percent of the time you're just looking for answers to how to sort a list of P, and uh, and maybe I need to look up where to have lunch too. Sure, sure. Yeah, make a developer-oriented search engine. I'd like it. Yeah, the majority of the searches are tech-related, so you know, yeah, the rest of the search capabilities are just kind of there if you need them. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> Uh, let's see. We'll stay on the Microsoft topic here, but uh, we're going to talk about the uh, dual screen. Uh, Microsoft shows off the UI designs for dual screen Windows 10, and they also, I believe, put out some APIs around this thing. Uh, so they, there's like an API stack for handling dual screens now. Um, I'm I'm going to be uh, pretty negative about Windows devices lately. I've had okay. nothing but trouble with my Surface Book. Um, I have the Surface Book 2. It's driven me absolutely nuts for the last year. And it seems like Microsoft comes up with these innovative, great ideas for hardware. And then they miss the follow through on one of the parts, uh, whether it's uh, the hardware itself, the firmware, the software. One of those three legs of the stool usually falls off, and then you end up with a broken device. Okay. Um, so, uh, you know, I think the only real successful hardware uh, as of recent has been the Xbox One. Uh, that seems to be doing fairly well. Mm-hmm. Um, we have one of those. It, it works for the most part, but we also don't have a competitive uh, console in the house. I don't have anything sure. to really compare that experience to. Um, it's, it's one of the better Microsoft devices anyway. The Surface Book. Um, I'm ready to just throw this thing out a window. Um, they've uh, ruined the firmware over the last few updates, and uh, we I, I get all kinds of performance issues and crackling sound issues and mm-hmm. all kinds of fun stuff. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm not ready to jump on a Microsoft device uh, hardware device again. Uh, but they're coming at us with this new foldable technology. Um, and they're trying to add some uh, 
APIs around it and mm -hmm. uh, some some UX guidelines around it. So it's a good start as long as they don't drop the ball on on that firmware and hardware part. Looks like they're getting their software uh, pieces in a row. Yeah, in Microsoft's defense, I mean, they're not the only ones doing this. There are a lot of other companies looking at this sort of dual screen, pop-up screen, you know, put the screen somewhere else type device. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm, I'm, again, I'm going to show my age here. I don't like these things. I think that they get dirty. <laughs> uh, I think that they ignore the sort of traditional model of keyboard, mouse, etc. Uh, there's a reason why we have laptops. And these dual screen devices strike me as a good innovation in some ways, but not very practical in others. And the reason for that is because they always involve organic interaction, meaning humans. And humans are really, really messy people. Uh, their hands are constantly dirty. I, I can only imagine what the screens will look like. I have trouble people actually touching my own laptop screen because I don't want to get it smudged. I can only imagine what the screen would look like now that you're using it as a keyboard or an input device. I think what this really speaks to is the desire to uh, have these sort of dual screen interactions, which is fine, but I think that the input needs to change. So as I you know, admitted myself, I'm a, a bit of a traditionalist when, when, it, when it comes to input, so mouse, keyboard, etc. But I think the real innovation here is going to voice. And I think that if these screens, or rather devices, um, can get away from having to take input through touch and have it more driven through voice, now it becomes an interesting proposition and the need for dual screen possibly goes away. Now, I am no by no means a usability, usability expert. Uh, I, I slap on a keyboard until stuff comes out and then I'm happy. However, I do, have, I do have some practical knowledge in this space because I'm also a parent. And I know that uh, kids are probably the best testers you'll ever have in terms of software. For whatever reason or another, they, sent, they tend to break software very, very well and hardware for that matter. I think dual screen devices are a very niche sort of idea and credit to Microsoft to push the envelope. I mean, these remind me of those sort of future vision videos that Microsoft office came out with many, many years ago where people were walking around with these things. And I remember very distinctly part of a video where uh, someone was walking through an airport and they had one of these dual screen phones and it looks great in the hand. But the reason why is because it's just been polished off camera. And so it has no smudges all over it. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've seen other people's iPhones and they're just the horror, dude, the horror of these, these devices, the amount of gunk all over them. Uh, these things would, I, I can only imagine, would be incredibly brittle. The fact that if you were to drop one of these things and now you've got screens on both sides, I mean, I, 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 I'm, I've taken my phone to those repair shops you see in malls. And I can only see those like doubling or tripling <laughs> because of these devices. I mean, people are clumsy. People are messy. Uh, I think you're better off just focusing. I think what we have with sort of an iPad experience is the right approach. I would like to see more horsepower in there, if possible, to try and drive these experiences around voice. Um, that being said, I think touch is a good medium as well. I don't know about stylus. I don't know about you know keyboards, soft keyboards, etc. I'm not really sold on them because they're frustrating to use. I think one of the best experiences I've had in recent times is the iPad plus keyboard experience um, where you kind of use it as sort of a cover. That sort of cover keyboard thing is wonderful. And so I think 
there's a really good space of competition there between Surface and iPad right now where you've got the sort of kickout keyboard stand um, that's part of the cover, et cetera. I think that's going to be around for a very long time. But, you know, this dual screen device thing, who knows? We'll see. Uh, I could be completely wrong. I've been wrong many times before. And, uh, you know, all credit to Microsoft to try and push the envelope. Yeah, I mean, we, we saw, uh, what was that? What was the movie? Minority Report. Like, I think that's what a lot of, a lot of tech folks probably think of, you know, when they think of these touchscreen interfaces yeah. and stuff. You know, you're throwing these UI elements around and it's really, it looks really great in a movie or a demo. And they're so impractical though, dude. In the dude, real I world. Do, oh, yeah. They're so impractical. The second I have to use an interface that's like rendering in 3D, I start rolling my eyes because I'm like, I know my productivity is going to go down. Give me a text output, please. And thank you. I don't <laughs> want to have fancy cubes. Like I watch old movies like Hackers or Johnny Mnemonic. Oh, those or, are the worst. <laughs> I know. They're like, I'm being hacked and all these pop-ups appear and, you know, people are just randomly tapping on keyboards, et cetera. It's ridiculous, you know? And so, and plus Zoom the productivity and goes. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> just give me a text output. Thank you. And that's all I need. Well, you need, uh, I think you need tactile feedback on, on this type of stuff. That's, I think, why on-screen keyboards have never really taken off. Um, you know, I, I think they, it could be easier and cheaper to manufacture than all of these mechanical switches and stuff, but you just don't have that feedback mm. when you're tapping on these things. And you can't kind of do that no-look, like kind of uh, writing and stuff like that. Sure. Um, that you can with a mechanical keyboard, and uh, a lot of a lot of software devs that I know use, you know, gamer hardware and keyboards because that you know you get that much more responsiveness out of the keys and whatnot. Right. Right. Um, it's also an easier. It's also an easier um, space for innovators like Microsoft, Google, etc. to play in. Right. I mean, it's mm -hmm. either it's very um, analog. Or sorry, very digital. Meaning um, you're either pressing the key or not, and where the where the finger lies on the screen is a solved problem now. I think you've got proximity, you've got sort of swipe keyboards, etc. Um, when I mentioned voice earlier, I said that as a, a sort of like if everything works well. The thing I didn't realize <laughs> around voice recently is that to computers we sound like whales, right? If you think about it, how fast a computer actually does its work, and then how slowly we talk relative to that work like we sound like really slow analog creatures right i'm trying to impress i'm trying to um, impress upon you the, the slowness of of the human input relative to voice so uh i can only imagine the amount of algorithms and work and study that goes into that like if you've got these long sine waves that you have to process and somehow turn into commands it's very hard it's no wonder that all the audio commands through Siri and through uh, Alexa, et cetera, have to go home somewhere in order to be processed. I mean, TensorFlow will help with that in some respects on the local device, but you know, they have to go someplace where there's a lot more heavy lifting because they're like, dude, I don't know what this guy's saying. Like, what is he saying? It sounds so weird to me. <laughs> I can only imagine those are the conversations going on within those, uh, those groups working on that stuff. Yeah, my, my daughter was using uh, the iPad the other day and she said, uh, play baby shark doot 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 and i heard siri respond back um adding baby shark to your to-do list <laughs> and she's yep. like facepalm the other room i'm like yep, yep that's that's about the state of things 
Yep. It um, reminds me of the Apple Newton back in the day when it had handwriting recognition. It was the same oh thing. God. Yeah. Uh, and a lot, just, a lot of the other. I totally dated myself, by the way. So there you go. A lot of the other difficulties in that space is like accents. Like everybody sure. talks with a different accent, even if it's the same language. Sure. So that's a that's a big hurdle. Um, oddly enough, in my experience, Cortana was the best of all these assistants at recognizing voice. Mm. And uh, Microsoft had a really good platform there, but somehow it just they couldn't get it to catch on with consumers at all. Um, probably the lack of a mobile device and uh, the, the right IoT device. So I think uh, Alexa's kind of taken over in that position, um, which is uh, kind of surprising is um, I haven't been too impressed uh, by a lot of the Amazon hardware that's out there. Um, the TVs, the Fire TV and the, the tablets, um, not, not a fan. Uh, had a lot, of, a lot of UX issues with those things. But it seems like Alexa's really come out of that, uh, that heap of technology and and made a name for itself. Yeah, but when it fails, it fails horribly, right? Like I, <laughs> I, I try and I'm trying to do the right thing by using voice commands while I'm driving. I never touch my phone, but I do talk to it. I'm like, please call so and so. Please play song X or Y. And it's it's just it's like you you just if you were to look at me driving alongside me along the highway, you would just see me screaming at my dashboard. No, I said do this, <laughs> you know. And uh, I got both hands, 10 and 2, right? Just, but just yelling at, at my windshield. And uh, people are like, what's wrong with that guy? Like, there's something really wrong. Like, dude, I'm just dealing here with Siri. It's really frustrating. Seems like the three big te- names in tech need to team up to make something really useful on, on that whole side of things with the whole AI voice bot type stuff. Uh, Microsoft had some really sound technology. Um, uh, Amazon had the platform and, uh, and Apple has the uh, UX, but right. neither of those companies do everything well. And uh, it's, it seems like um, Amazon's weak in the UX department um, and uh, Apple's weak in the, the platform department. Um, and, and Microsoft is uh, bad in the marketing department. Um, if they would have all just combined into one which they will never do for anything. Um, but if they would have all combined in one uh, assistant device, I think it would have been uh, as close to perfect as we're going to get these days. Uh, I think I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be the contrarian here and say we're so far away from that, meaning uh, to a, a good experience. I think it's going to take years and years of effort. Yeah, uh, so let's, uh, let's shift gears again. We've got... Um, some books to talk about. We've got the 25 most recommended programming books of all time. Yeah, so this was a list that popped up on Dev, uh, dev.to, the, uh, the site there. Uh, very popular amongst, obviously, uh, developers. And this was an article written back um, just yesterday. In fact, it was uh, basically a list of the 25 most recommended programming books of all time. And I went through the list and some of these I was kind of smiling and nodding because I was thinking to myself, yep, I've read that or I attempted to read that. Um, So there's a few notable examples on here, some of which some of you may have never heard of before. uh, But some of the ones that I just wanted to mention here, um, number 24 algorithms was a book that I remember having back in the day uh, when I did computer science back in the uh, uh, 
early to late <laughs> or early to <laughs> mid nineties. I know how far back we go. Uh, that one was interesting because uh, at first I was like, uh, I don't know what's going on here. Number twenty-two, rapid development with Steve by Steve McConnell. That one was great. I love that one. Very very practical book. I I thought it was excellent and uh, was uh, I, I felt very empowered by that book because a lot of the ideas I had around software but weren't able to validate because for various reasons like the internet wasn't really a thing then uh, were uh, in that book. Number nineteen, the art of computer programming by uh, Knuth. Um, this is sort of the seen as the Bible for uh, a lot of folks doing development. I tried to get into this series of books. It was hard. It was very, very, very difficult for me to kind of crack into that space of books because the the concepts that were covered were just so far beyond me. Um, but I I understand and respect now what people were saying back then when I was just getting into this business of software development. Uh, Introduction to Algorithms is another one that I I read, number 14 on this list. Uh, This one I actually took as well in uh, my computer science courses and uh, was great. We used it for a variety. This is where I learned how to do the traveling salesman. Uh, I really really thought that was the first algorithm I learned. I was like, I get it. I, I got it. He's going from place to place on a graph and there's nodes and edges and they have weights and what's the most efficient way to get from A to Z. Uh, so yeah, that was a good book. I like that one. Code number 13 by Charles Petzold. I have not read this one and I feel horrible for admitting that because I know how good it is based on other people's um, sort of uh, comments online about it. Uh, so, you know, that, that would be one that I probably should get to reading about, but basically um, these and other sorts of books are, are listed on this post. And I thought it was really great to see a list like this. Um, and uh, some of the other ones that I'll, I won't steal your thunder, but I'm sure there's a few like number three, Code Complete by Steve McConnell. I'm sure you've read that one, Ed. Uh, but these and other books are great. And I was just wondering, Ed, you know, are, are some of these on your list? So this, this is going to be uh, an eye opener for many people, um, unless you've heard me say this before. I don't read books. Okay. I'm not a book guy. I just, okay. I don't read books. Um, I know that I'm I'm probably in a minority there, but uh, I don't have the attention span to sit through a whole book. And um, I spend a lot more time reading individual pieces, uh, so blog articles. Um, If I need a, uh, if I need to learn a task out of a given book, I might pick up a book and grab maybe a chapter out of it, but I don't read cover to cover ever. Um, not recommending this to anyone. I'm just, it's, uh, my own personal, uh, uh, just the way I, I work. Uh, my, my, my brain's not wired to sit behind a book and read it cover to cover. That's um, fine. So I, I have very few, uh, books that I can say I've read. Okay. Um, one that I've picked up recently that, um, I, I like, uh, is a book on C sharp functional programming. Um, that one I, I got through a good part of on a flight, uh, but again, I can't say I read it into completion. Um, so you, you didn't, you, you weren't, you weren't, uh, blessed like the rest of us with all those rocks series of books, the, the whole red series of books on red, a yellow writing on, on red background with the photo of every author under the sun type style of book. You, you didn't read those. I don't know what you're talking about. that's funny some of the some of the folks listening to this be like laughing right now well hopefully they're laughing because they know what i'm talking about and then there's people who are like dude i don't know what you're talking about just like you 
Yeah. So like words on paper will, will just start to blur into infinity on me. Um, so my, my go-to is documentaries. Um, I can, I can do documentaries cause they're very visual. Um, cause you, you know, you need the, the, the visualized portion of the show to watch. Um, there's been some really good ones. Um, they were on Netflix. They are not anymore. I don't believe. Uh, but there is a British mathematician. Um, can't remember his name off the top of my head. I will look it up for the show notes though. Um, but uh, he did a series through the BBC, and you could think of this guy as the um, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson of math, right? He's got the presentation skills and the okay. knowledge, okay. Um, and he's got a good uh, couple series that he put out on. Uh, I think one was the history of maths. Um, the other was, uh, uh, I think, it's simply called algorithms. Okay. Um, which is is really good. Talks about uh, all of the modern day algorithms that run everything. Uh, you know how sorts work and all that type of stuff. Uh, th- those are really good. Um, and there's I'm trying to remember what the other one was. The the history, uh, history one was really good. Kind of uh, showed how all the math evolved, or maths if you're if you're on the other side of the world. How all the maths evolved from different cultures and things. Uh, so those are really good um, in, uh, in relatable to software development, but uh, yeah, not a book, not a book connoisseur. I, I hear you. If, if you're a fan of that, Ed, and for those of you listening, um, I know that Sean Wildermuth is working on a documentary called hello world, the film where he's actually interviewing a whole bunch of really prominent developers. And um, this is coming out hopefully soon. I talked to Sean and folks that he's interviewed about this uh, a long time ago, and he's got some great interviews lined up, uh, and you can check it out at helloworldfilm.com if you're into that sort of thing as well. Yeah, um, that should be pretty interesting. I know he's been putting a lot of work into it, so uh, mm-hmm. it'd be nice to see it once it's completed. Uh, speaking of writing and reading, um, while I don't read a lot of books, I do a lot of writing. Uh, and uh, when I do my writing, I use Markdown. Right. And uh, you have some uh, uh, evolution of Markdown type of uh, uh, articles to talk about. Sure. So this came out of uh, a recent post on Hacker News where folks were chatting about Markdeep, which is basically an evolution of the Markdown syntax for adding diagrams, equations, etc. For those of you who don't know, Markdown is a very simple, it's, it's sort of like an antithesis of Markup, basically. It allows you to author uh, plain text documents and have them formatted really well. But the set of features in the format is very small. So you have things like paragraphs, tables, headers, bullet points, etc. But beyond that, you don't have a lot. Uh, and so it, over the years, people have taken a variety of attempts to try and improve, in, the, in their view, uh, the the, the way that Markdown is represented. And so you see these sort of flavors that pop, that pop up from time to time. Um, some of the most notable ones are obviously GitHub-flavored Markdown, so the ability to add certain annotations, if you will, to your Markdown uh, to provide additional capabilities. And one of the ones that was obviously mentioned, as I said before, was Markdeep. And this is using uh, the ability to inject uh, diagrams in a form of ASCII art, et cetera, 
to uh, have these rendered out accordingly uh, when generating your docs. And I, I'm kind of on the fence on this. I like the simplicity of Markdown. I think it's a really great format for authoring docs, and it's really easy to convert by tools, which makes it powerful. Um, nothing's worse than getting a document in markup and then having to kind of, you know, rip out all the styles that are in line or kind of figure out why is the person using, you know, strong versus italic or, you know, wh what is this image here? It's not even like a really good image. It's too small or it won't scale, etc. So Markdown is, is really great at authoring docs. And I think that's the sort of canonical choice amongst folks who are writing docs, uh, developers in particular. Um, styles that in get injected into Markdown in the form of these sort of flavors like Markdeep, et cetera, I think are a good evolution. I think that they represent kind of the needs that people have for authoring documentation. And another one I like is Mermaid, um, which is basically the ability to add things like class diagrams or other types of diagrams into a Markdown file. And the representation of these things is not as complicated as you would imagine. Now, you don't have a lot of strict control over how the rendering occurs, but the fact that you have the ability to add things like diagrams, flowcharts, uh, Gantt charts, pie charts, etc., gives you a capability now that alleviates you having to take a snapshot or a screenshot of an image of that said diagram and have it rendered in a number of different ways, which is something that I actually don't mind, to be honest. So. Um, I think it's an interesting discussion. Uh, what do you author your docs in? How do they look, et cetera? I think that evolutions of the Markdown language and syntax through flavors like this is a good thing as well. But I'd be curious to hear what you think, Ed, around these sorts of things. Like, obviously, you have some experience with Markdown as well. Yeah, I, I think uh, for me, it kind of boils down to where do we hit the tipping point where this thing that was meant to be a simple tool to kind of um, convey some documentation like um, like Markdown does now. So we, we have, like you said, Markup, which is HTML, stuff like that. Um, we have this complex system for creating web pages, uh, HTML, JavaScript, CSS. Uh, when do we evolve Markdown to the point where we're just kind of reinventing the wheel and, and hitting the whole HTML side of things again? Right. Um, so we kind of just need to be careful, like, uh, don't over, don't over engineer the thing that was meant to, to keep it simple. Yep. Um, cause then what we're going to end up with is a third standard called Mark. I don't know. Mid Mark flavor of the Mid week Mark? that just <laughs> does all the, yeah, does all the simple things again. Um, uh, Mark YAML. I don't know. Oh God. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? I mean, it, it kind of evolves in that direction i think we've seen the same thing happen with the, the json format it's like well json doesn't have schemas let's add schemas let's do this let's do that we end up with xml all over again. um i just uh i, I just kind of want to warn against that outcome um sure. some of the stuff though i think looks like you know what people use and becomes popular will probably shake out of this oh, which yeah. will be interesting to see and one of the things i'm, I'm looking at in the mermaid um API here is the idea of a Git graph. And that is something that can be represented extremely easy through text and then converted into this, this diagram. Mm -hmm. um, that is the type of stuff that I can see lasting. Um, I mean, 
developers. We already use this for documentation. Uh, being able to show a Git graph just by entering, you know, data in and decorating it with this Git graph notation around the outside. Um, that's very powerful. Coming up with these elaborate uh, flow charts, like in the Mark Deep example that they show, I don't see anybody using that on a regular basis. Okay. Um, I'm I have a hard enough time remembering how tables work in Mark Markdown, let alone right. all of this ASCII art converted to graphics uh, idea. Um, you know, when are we going to get like the the um, Microsoft Paint or Markdown where we can like draw these things and have it convert the drawing into the ASCII art only to be converted back to the drawing? Why don't we just use an image? begin with i don't know oh um, i hear you i hear you but it's having you know, having that you. aspect yeah yeah i know people are screaming at their uh their podcast devices right now what do you mean dude it's awesome <laughs> you know, how dare you uh yeah i hear you uh, i just like i know are you, you <laughs> bad mouthing microsoft paint bro uh so i think that uh i think i hear you i you know markdown needs to remain simple i get that I think that there is some room for evolution through these flavors. I like some of them. Uh, I, I would like to see some some envelope pushing, so to speak. And uh, I think things like Mermaid um, and uh, you know other examples uh, associated like, like Mark Deep, for example, are, are great evolutions in what's possible. The challenge there, of course, is you have to have a, you know all these different renders support those um, those formats. What do they look like if they're not, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I just hate using images. I'd love to use SVG everywhere. Sometimes that's not a reality. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there are there are some things that you can do around that, but I just find images they're not very portable. They're they're uh, opaque. You you have no idea what they represent. Uh, they scale horribly. They don't. They their fidelity is poor. There's so many things that I think could be better, and that's kind of I'm thinking of this sort of, you know, going towards text because it has one, one meaning to it. Um, also for localization, things like that, uh, screen readers, et cetera, uh, adaptability is much better if you're in text first rather than image. But there you go. Yeah. I think uh, with a lot of the things we talked about so far, um, you know, if I say it's an idea I don't like, or um, for example, the, uh, you know, there's been a lot of, uh, Microsoft hardware misses in Amazon uh, IoT devices that are or other devices that haven't worked out. For all the failures, this it propels something forward, right? Mm -hmm. The good ideas kind of settle out of those things. So we do end up with uh, with good ideas that come out of the bad. I'm not just like dogging everything that uh, we talk about today. Um, like I said, there there's Features I can see that the Mermaid platform or flavor of Markdown could bring forward that that look pretty cool, and then those will probably get adopted widely, right? Um, right. And so on. And uh, I think some of that stuff's cool, but you don't need all of it. Um, and then there's going to be the hardcore fans of these things that that love it no matter what, like sure. it's uh, their child they unconditionally love or something. But uh, sure. we get that with any kind of tech, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Speaking of tech we love unconditionally, <laughs> .NET Interactive is here. That's right. 
So this is uh this is sort of a re a rebrand new name around some of the work that's been done around try.net. Uh for those who don't know try.net is an ability to basically uh enable a runnable script environment within a browser uh powered by Blazor. And the reason why a tool like this is useful is because oftentimes people don't want like developers come to a new technology. Like despite the fact that .net is pretty much everywhere or whatever other technology you want to name there's always going to be folks who are new to the platform or have never seen it before. And you want to provide them a really good experience of kicking the tires, so to speak. More often than not, historically, that has been download this SDK. Uh, oh, you don't have this installed. You need that too. Uh, download this possible package manager you may, may have never heard of. So there's a lot of barriers to entry for folks graduating out of high school, university, et cetera, who are wanting to experience these technologies. and so. These innovations around things like try.net, et cetera, are great because they allow people to see the technology as, as, it, as it works within the content, in the confines of a browser or otherwise. And so .NET Interactive, um, which was announced uh, last week, two weeks ago, is basically um, an evolution of that effort. And uh, a lot of this also centers around uh, Jupyter Notebooks, which is obviously a, a way of interacting with uh, an environment, um, Jupiter's used a lot of places, um, but it's a great sort of testing environment that you can interact with. And notebooks are, they're kind of, sort of akin to like OneNote in a sense. And uh, you've got these sort of uh, sections that you, you, you construct your, uh, your notebooks. And then from there, you can drive these and then demonstrate uh, you know, capabilities of the language, or if you're authoring docs, here we go again, coming back to, you know, the argument around Markdown and possibly using uh, something like this for documentation. Uh, it provides an interactive experience. So these are capabilities that they're adding to things like uh, Jupyter Notebooks that allow you to test out the capabilities of .NET inline. And this is supported through a variety of other capabilities as well. So there's a, a feature of this, uh, the ability to write and run uh, and interact with this is is a feature supported through Interact, which is an open source project um, that allows you to build SDKs, applications, and libraries, and then provide this interactive experience. Um, people have known this as a REPL, which is a way of actually interfacing with uh, a language. REPL stands for Read Eval Print Loop, and it's a way in which you can have sort of integration with a language through a shell, and so you can issue commands. People have seen this in a variety of languages, and now it's available through uh, PowerShell and uh, Jupyter Notebooks and allows you a really nice experience for kind of kicking the tires, so to speak. I see this as a great innovation around documentation. Um, nothing speaks better than having uh, a demo. I've always said it like uh, a picture is worth a thousand words, but a demo is worth a thousand pictures. And if you have something like this where you can write code and then interact with it and then run it, that doesn't require an SDK download or a package manager or anything like that. Now you're talking my language. Now I can start seeing what it is you're trying to tell me, and I can get a better sense of what this all involves. What if I have a picture of a thousand demos? What then, John? I don't know. I think <laughs> uh, I think the computer reboots, and then you're kind of kicked out of the simulation, you know. And then uh, you know people start asking you like, "How did you get so smart when you're out?" But uh, no, a tool like this is great. I think uh, if you know if you're curious, you can go check it out. But uh, you know, I'm a big fan of helping people, especially new uh, folks to the community around .NET or other languages 
or environments. I think this is nothing but goodness. And I think you need things like this to help people get up to speed because, you know, we've talked about programming languages. We've talked about documentation. We've talked about programming books. All of these things exist because it's really hard. So if there's a facility like this, like .NET Interactive, to kind of shorten the length of time it takes to get up to speed on concepts or, you know, things around the .NET capabilities of, I don't know, F-sharp or C-sharp or, or whatever, then it's nothing but a good thing, I think. Yeah, I think uh, one of the reasons Microsoft probably did this is um, to get more into the machine learning space. Uh, I believe these Jupyter Notebooks are a big part of the ML ecosystem. And Microsoft has two offerings now um, in in the uh, ML uh, environment where we've got ML.net and also uh, the ML, uh, what, is, what do they call it these days? The Azure ML Studio platform. Um, and you're able to use uh, in the Azure ML Studio, you're able to use .NET and Python and R. And there may be some more options there as well. No expert by any means. Um, and then in ML.NET, obviously you're using .NET. And you can also bring in models that were written in other platforms. Um, and notebooks go along with the ML style of uh, or workflow. So this would be helpful if I had, say, uh, some data that I was bringing in and I wanted to show um, that uh, maybe I, I've, I've got a correlation between one data point and another, and this is what led me to my choice in what, what model or what label to apply in my model and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So I think this is where that has a play, um, and that's, that's more why they're doing it, in my opinion than any other um but the interactive bits are really interesting because that's mm -hmm. something that the c-sharp language and f-sharp as well has has really lacked um and one of the reasons that i believe javascript has taken off the way it has is because it's so accessible you don't need a compiler and tooling and all this stuff and just open up a, a browser window and or console and just start typing commands and you can see results immediately yeah they're um, cheating they they have it they're cheating a little bit because they have it. It's built into the browser, but you're yeah. right. Uh, you know, um, F sharps always had a, a first class REPL experience I found, but I think it's still, I mean, it's, this is going a level beyond that, I think. So uh, I think providing that through a capability like this uh, now starts to open up possibilities of what's, you know, what you're capable of doing in the context of, you know, .NET. And I think it's a great learning tool. I think it's a great facility for people wanting to, you know, share knowledge around things. And, um, you know, you, you said it yourself, if, if folks like who are database administrators or support engineers want to use these things, for example, um, they can do so with PowerShell, for example. So, you know, it does kind of bleed into that sort of, you know, how do I, you know, creating an interactive runbook for emergency procedures using a technology like this is something I would easily see DBA sysadmins and support engineers using, for example. So. Lots of use, usable and uh, really practical uh, applications here, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely some cool stuff. Um, we get to see uh, Try.net uh, evolve, um, and that's, that's all part of the Blazor, Blazor initiative, and uh, mm -hmm. that's going to be one of the biggest, I think, 
uses a blazer for a little while is uh microsoft dog putting that in uh sure bringing that into uh, the market through try.net. So it's uh, very cool to see. Um, mm -hmm. We've uh, we've covered quite a spectrum of topics here today, John. Uh, yes. We looked at CSS and plane crash immersion <laughs> and uh, UX. No, no, metaphors, no, no metaphors to my code there. Plane crashes, you know, that's definitely a good, uh, yeah. you know, people making jokes about, oh, it's like the code you write, you know. <laughs> Uh, or, or the podcast you might be listening to. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, think, I think that was uh, fun to uh, be able to talk about all these things and, and riff on these ideas. Um, and, and again, it's not to, uh, it's to kind of bring our, our opinions and experience in here, not to make fun of anything. There, there's some really good ideas being shared here. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, whether, whether there's things we agree with or not, they're great ideas to get out there and evolve different uh, parts of the ecosystem so it's I been agree. fun to chat with you about those we will try to make this a regular thing um and uh we'll do this uh every other week or so and we'll air those on the sleep code podcast sounds good um any any closing remarks no uh just uh you know stay positive out there uh you know eat your vegetables get good sleep most important things about you know doing your job well as a software developer. Uh, think about the ancillary things. Don't stay up late. Uh, your brain works better if it has a full eight hours, et cetera, and got good vitamins and minerals. All right, John, uh, we'll, we'll keep bringing these things to you. I've got some other shows coming as well. We'll have some interviews interweaved within the uh, news segments. So uh, we'll have some of those coming up. So stay tuned, add it to your, uh, if you haven't already, um, we've been on a bit of hiatus for a bit, so if you need to re-add the Eat Sleep Code podcast to your regular uh, feeds for your podcast catcher, uh, please do that. And you can also catch me on Twitch um, as soon as I get my new hardware set up here. i got uh, some live coding to do, uh, usually on Fridays. Like I said, once the hardware gets uh, set back up, every Friday I'll be doing some Blazor live coding. Um, John, where can we catch you? Uh, you can just check check me out on Twitter, um, John Bristow at Twitter, uh, and uh, I tend to post there from time to time. I think that uh, you know, I, I I tend to do a lot more. I'm I'm definitely uh, in read only mode a lot more than than uh, write only mode. And uh, <laughs> but if you want to check out uh, my Twitter, you can. Uh, I work for Octopus Deploy these days. You can check us out at octopus.com. Uh, that's octopus on Twitter and uh, you know, I'll probably be at an event near you in the near future if you need to find John just look for the old man yelling at a cloud sure <laughs>